Welcome back to another episode of James Reed's Forge. We are continuing our study in the book of James. We are in James chapter 4. And thus far, we have talked about the book of James in terms of a series of tests. We've seen the test of faith, obedience, true religion, brotherly love, good works, the tongue, and our last discussion took us to the test of motivation. Now we're going to look at the test of submission. The test of submission. So starting with verse 7, we see instructions on how to repent. You could think of it as a roadmap for repentance. Check the therefore, the word therefore, in verse 7. Remember from the first podcast on James chapter 4 when I went off script, we talked about giving the law of God to the proud, but preaching grace to the humble. James is basically saying here, given the previous verses up to this point, you should submit to God. Now, of course, that's my paraphrase, but the idea is there. Verses 7 through 10 give us a way to repent. This is interesting to contrast to what James told us in the very first chapter. He basically gave us the steps which lead to sin. Do you remember what they were? Let's review. James said each one is tempted when he is, number one, drawn away by his own, number two, desires, and number three, enticed. Then when desire has number four, conceived, it gives birth to number five, sin. And sin, when it is number six, full grown, brings forth number seven, death. So you could think of those as the seven steps of sin or perhaps the seven stages of sin's formation and results. But notice how James personifies our desires and our enticements as if when drawn away by these things, there is an actual birth given to that very ugly baby named sin. And as sin grows and takes over more and more of our life, we now find that we are completely controlled by it. We are obsessed with it. It becomes an addiction. And finally, death is the result. Now, of course, there is physical death, which is the result of sin on all humanity and all creation. Everything that we know of will die a physical death. That is, if it's living but there is also the death of innocence that comes with sin, the death of relationships, personal integrity, death, death of trust, um, and much more. Sin will always keep you longer than you want it to stay, and it will always cost more than you want it to pay. Let me say that again. Sin will always keep you longer than you want it to stay 
and it will always cost more than you wanted to pay. But here, beginning in verse 7, James offers us steps in repentance. Step 1, submit to God. This may seem obvious or even a bit easy. However, to truly submit to God, you must be willing to examine yourself based upon his law. You must get rid of all excuses. You must get rid of pride. This will probably look a bit different for each and every person. Why? Because we all struggle with different things in life. We all are bent towards certain things. We have different personalities and there are many factors um, and it can vary depending on any number of these factors. But the bottom line here is that we must yield to him. We must realize that, as I stated before, standing on our own, we have no case in the courtroom of the Most High God. Our only hope is submission to Him. Step number two, resist the devil. Are you resisting the devil or are you resisting God? It all comes down to pride. You have two choices. You can either serve God or you can serve the enemy of your very soul. This brings us back to step one, which means that submission to God. To submit to God is to obey God. If you resist the devil, this means you are rejecting everything that the world offers. You reject its philosophy, its system, its ideas, and anything and everything which goes against God's word. To run toward God means that you are fleeing the devil's kingdom. And of course, here at the Forge, we preach and declare the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So instead of embracing the devil's kingdom and the devil's wisdom and philosophy, you embrace God's wisdom, not the world's, not the devil's, but God's wisdom. And look at what James promises us if we resist the devil. He says that the devil will flee from us. Step number three, draw near to God and check out the promise that comes with this. God will actually draw near to you. I've heard it put this way. The Father provides the plan. Jesus is the way and the Holy Spirit is the guidance. You can know God's wisdom for this plan, way, and guide by reading God's word. The point, this point, <clears throat> reminds me of a story. An elderly couple were out for a drive one evening in the husband's old truck, and the husband was driving, and the wife sat on the passenger side. As they pulled up to a red light, the wife noticed another couple in another truck in the next lane. And the other couple were young, and they were probably newlyweds. And the young wife was sitting beside her new young husband. And he had his arm around her, and he had his free hand on the steering wheel. And the elderly wife commented to her elderly husband, I remember when we were young, and you used to put your arm around me. Just like that, when I would sit next to you. 
And the elderly husband responded, I didn't move. Friends, it's not that God removed his arms from around us. He does not move. We are the ones who move away from God. We can be so stubborn sometimes. Our hearts can be so turned so easily. But we're the ones who don't want to draw near to God. We're the ones who don't want to draw near to Him. But James tells us here that if we draw near to God, that He will draw near to us. Step four, the cleansing of the hands and the purifying of the hearts. Again, here are references in uh, verses 7 through uh, 10 that it would be familiar to the Jewish believer in Jesus Christ. They would understand this because the Jews had elaborate cleansing rituals. Uh, these ceremonies can be found throughout the Old Testament. Um, and I will list the references, some references, in the show notes. But they were meant to cleanse not only the dirt of the ground, but also the dirt of the heart of sinful man. So James also implies here the words that he's using. These are a cleansing of the actions, and that's notated by the word hands. So the cleansing of our actions, that would be the things we do with our hands. And then the cleansing of the heart, what is that? Again, it comes back to motive, the cleansing of our motives. So he says, cleanse your hands and cleanse your heart. So, uh, once again, um, we see this theme of motivation, don't we? <laughs> and this is all uh, symbolic, or it's a word picture of the washing, which can only happen in the blood of Jesus Christ. So, note that once again, James is commanding uh, those of us who are believers, to not be double-minded. To be double-minded is to be hypocritical. Do you remember the other reference uh, where James mentions this? He mentions it in chapter 1, and he, repre- and he, um, um, he mentions this double-mindedness uh, whenever a person asks of God but doubts in his heart. And he says, don't do that. That's a double-minded man. And he says the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So here is another uh, exhortation about being double-minded. So that takes us to step five, where he gives the commands to lament, mourn, and weep over our sins. And these are the very things in which we used to find delight. So there's no lasting good memory of our sin. If you look back on your days without Christ and the things you used to do that were sinful actions and sinful motivations of the heart, and you still look at them with fondness, uh, James says here to lament that we are to weep and mourn over those things. So we don't look at the way we used to live, uh, and we don't look back to the past and celebrate our sin It was sin. It was based in rebellion and pride and foolishness and all those things that we've talked about up to this point. And again, 
These are words like lament and mourn and weep. These are This is Old Testament language that would be familiar to the Jewish follower of Jesus Christ. They understood that this was a call to genuine repentance. Anytime you read in the Old Testament about weeping and mourning and lamenting, it is a call usually from the prophet of God to the people of Israel to repent and come back to God. So when you truly see yourself for what you really are, in sight of a holy God, in the sight of a holy God, um, you have absolutely no reason to be happy. Um, repentance is a radical turning away from the stupidity and the utter folly of your sins. And if you still are looking back at sin as something that you would love to do, um, check again your motivation. So step number six, he says, Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And this is ultimately where everything up to this point has been leading. We are to hear God's law and humble ourselves before him. Step. I love this part. God will lift you up. This is the promise that comes from the first part of that. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and the promise God will lift you up. There is salvation for those who call out upon the name of Jesus. So this passage, verses 7 through 10, like I said, it's kind of a road map. I listed out seven steps here. Um, A road map, if you want to think of it that way, on how to repent or um, what you should be repenting of and from. God tells us what leads to a victorious life. And that is this, a life that is transformed in him. We must be vulnerable to him. And the call is very simple, actually. Submit. But then he says, not not to just simply submit, but come near. There's this call to wash, purify, grieve, mourn, wail, (laughs) change, humble ourselves. Each one of these concepts leads to a closer relationship with God. In other words, to the extent that I do these things will be the extent that I find myself growing in a life that's bearing fruit, building character, and becoming a more mature and effectual uh, Christian and a minister to others who are around us. So when we are humble, God is glorified And he lifts us up. And that's what's so beautiful. He didn't have to lift me up. But he has chosen to glorify himself by lifting me up out of the miry clay. So it is not about how I would do things. It's not about my fleshly desires and motivations. It is all about God's desires. It is all about a pure and holy motivation that comes from a relationship with him. So now let us go ahead and take a look at the next section of verses. We're going to look at verses 11 and 12. 
we come to a phrase which everyone seems to know, and that is, do not judge others. Isn't it funny how folks who almost know nothing about the Bible or Christianity, they know one thing for sure, and that is, don't judge me. This phrase is probably one of the most misunderstood things in the entire Bible. James can be cross-referenced here to Matthew chapter 7. The first thing that we read in Matthew's gospel in chapter 7 is, Judge not that you be not judged. Now, keep in mind that this is Jesus talking here in Matthew chapter 7 verse 1. And who's he talking to? Well, he's talking to his followers. Now, I'm not going to do an entire study of the book of Matthew in this podcast. This episode is dedicated to the book of James, and specifically, we are in James chapter 4, we're at verse 11. Um, But we are going to touch on Matthew here, because context is what forces us to read every verse of every chapter of every book in the Bible. Context is how we use the Bible to interpret the Bible. Context is how exegesis is done. And exegesis is just a fancy word, which means to pull out from, uh, in this case, to pull out from Scripture. In other words, we're not reading our ideas onto Scripture. We're letting the Scripture speak for itself. So that said, Matthew 7 is the same place where Jesus tells us not to give things that are holy to dogs. He tells us not to cast pearl before swine. It's the same chapter where Jesus tells us to be aware of false prophets, telling us that we will know the false prophets by their fruit. So how do I know a dog or a swine or a false prophet if in the same breath I'm told not to judge? Well, the answer is that the judgment which we are warned about when it comes to judging others has to do with placing ourselves in the place of God. Certainly, I have to evaluate others to determine falsehood from truth. You have to do that as well. That doesn't make us a judge. That doesn't make me a judge or you a judge. The judgment in mind here goes hand in hand with pride, which James was speaking about in the previous verses that we have covered up to this point. So you can see the importance of context and the importance of not ripping one verse or one phrase out and you can make it say whatever you want to say. You've got to keep it in context. So um, an attitude of wrath um, assumes the place of a judge and arrogance and pride are the fountainhead of all sin. When you boil all sin down, it comes down to pride and arrogance. It's self-exaltation, which leads to the degrading of others. It's inevitable. If you're going to seek to pull yourself up, you are going to speak poorly of other people. So when James talks about speaking evil of someone else, he actually means to speak down about. That phrase actually means to speak down about another, in this case, speaking down about another person. And this continues the concept from chapter 3, where we talked about the destructive power of the tongue. Remember, we talked about the test of the tongue. In short, if you're talking about someone in an effort to put them down, you are placing yourself as a judge over them. And the question is, do you have that status? 
James would imply here that you do not have that status. So to place yourself in this position is in essence to set yourself above the law, above the law of Moses, um, which is also the law of God. We call it the law of Moses because Moses is the one who was the giver of the law, the one who uh, transcribed the law down. But ultimately, if you hear the law of Moses or you hear that phrase, the law of Moses, or they refer to the law of Moses, it doesn't mean that God did not originate it. So we're talking here, placing yourself above the law of Moses or above the law of God and the law of liberty, the law of liberty. So such a judge is not a doer of the law since both the old law, which it would be the law of God in the Old Testament and the new law of life in Christ, the new covenant, they both forbid such actions. So you can't be a doer. Remember, James was talking about being a doer of the law, not a hearer only. So if you place yourself in that position of judge, you're not a doer of the law. So to be a judge, one must have all the facts. And James tells us here that there's only one lawgiver. There's only one who knows all the facts of each believer's life. And he alone is able to save and to destroy. The lawgiver is Jesus Christ himself. There is one lawgiver, friends, and it's not you. And it's not me. <laughs> so we speak a lot about the law of liberty or the law of love as Christians. The law James is talking about here is not a list of regulations that no one can possibly keep. And we've covered that before. There is a new law. What is that law? It's the law of love. You know, God declared his love for Israel, and now he declares his love for Gentiles also. The bottom line is this, that by talking about someone, you're placing yourself above that law and above God. You are not acting in love. You are your only response. <clears throat> Needs to be a response of gratitude for the grace that you didn't deserve and mercy, which is the withholding of what you really did deserve. Just a moment here to define terms. Grace is simply uh, God giving you something that you did not deserve. Mercy is his withholding of the punishment that you actually deserve. So when we talk about grace and mercy, that's what we're talking about. So let me ask a question. Have you ever said something like this? I don't mean to gossip, but I heard this. Or I don't mean to be critical, but fill in the blank. Or have you heard about such and such or so and so? And don't fool yourself. Uh, your, your intention when you start a sentence off that way, it is to be critical. So don't say to yourself, I'm not trying to be critical. Yes, you are. There's an excitement that comes with the news, and it's so overwhelming that you can't keep it under wraps. Uh, you either started it yourself or you want to repeat it. It's all the same. It's sin. And a judgment can be anything from straight-out condemnation to manipulating people in situations to make yourself look good, as we've mentioned already. So in the context of this passage... The call here is to draw near to God. Remember, we talked about drawing near to God. 
and that he would draw near to you. Nevertheless, uh, such things as this kind of gossip and this kind of down talking, or maybe even you could, I've heard the term trash talking. It draws us away from God and it draws us away from humility that he asks of us. And why does God ask that of us? Well, it's for our good. It's that we might grow and mature in him. So when we're being mature, we don't play destructive games with one another. Sometimes when somebody is up to no good, they can get the attention off of themselves and onto somebody else by a carefully placed put down or an evil word. Uh, people within religious activity can be critical and hurtful when they open their mouth about another person. We've all seen it. This often happens to those in leadership. Having been in leadership in a church before, I can tell you that uh, you almost never do anything right. <laughs> but what is often at work is the conviction of the Holy Spirit here. It is much easier to put someone down who's attempting to do what God has called them to do uh, than to obey what you have been called to do <laughs> by that same Holy Spirit. So if you're talking about someone in your church and you claim to be a Christian, you're actually talking about a family member. And we've talked about the damage that this does to people, and it can be damaging within the church. And a lot of times I'll use the phrase religious activity. Um, I feel like um, religious activity is different than the Lord's church. The Lord's church is victorious. The Lord's church is uh, beautiful. The Lord's church is being persecuted right now. The Lord's church is um, actively loving and pursuing God his church has never died. His church will never die. It will never be stomped out. It will never quit. And um, so there is religious activity is the other phrase that I like to use for many things that happen, maybe in a church building or around a church organization. Um, maybe there are even Christians involved, but um, that's not the Lord's church necessarily. Um, and I just wanted to clarify that. So a lot of times I'll say things like religious activity because I'm trying to make a distinction. And I also, I don't want to speak badly of the Lord's church. Listen, the church is the bride of Christ. How would you feel if somebody was talking about your wife? So I want to be very careful to make that distinction. There is religious activity that does happen within the church, but not all religious activity is of God. And I do hope that makes some sense to you. Anyway, the bottom line here is we don't want to be guilty of leaving uh, others hurting and confused. We're not the judge. I'm not the judge. And before I move on, I want to make one last thing clear. If you're involved in sin and I call you on that sin, that doesn't make me a judge. Um, as an example, if you're having an affair and I call you on it and I actually say that you're an adulterer, um, that's not me acting as a judge. That is a fact. You were cheating on your spouse. I called you on it. The fact is that you were cheating and that's called adultery. Uh, if you lie to me 
And I call you on that and I say, hey, you lied to me. Um, that makes you a liar. You lied to me. Um, that doesn't make me a judge. That's just a fact. And according to Matthew 18, I am to come to you alone first. So I come to you privately. I don't blast this as an announcement on Sunday morning announcements in the pulpit of the church. I come to you privately and I say, hey, this is what I have seen. This is what I know. And I'm calling on you as a brother in Christ to repent. It's only if you refuse to repent that I bring a witness. And I'm not to go running my mouth about your sin. But judgment happens whenever I take the next step and I put myself in God's place. If I dare to say something like, um, you're condemned to hell for doing that, I just crossed the line. I went from stating a fact to placing myself as judge. And people get this mixed up. Often they get it mixed up because they simply don't want to hear the preacher or they don't want to hear a friend uh, exposing their sins. Um, pointing something out as sin is not the same thing as judging. Um, it's much easier to accuse someone of judging you rather than uh, actually repenting when you get your hand caught in the cookie jar. So we're going to close our comments on James 4 by discussing the last little section here, and that is how foolish it is to think that we can act independently of God. And we're in verses 13 through 17. I am amazed at the plans that people make. Um, how much money was lost with the collapse of the real estate market in the late 2000s? All these investors and others were speculating on what they were going to do tomorrow and how good it was going to be tomorrow. And it looks like we could actually be heading that way again. Like we don't learn from previous mistakes. And we could talk about all the forces that were in place that caused the financial bubble to eventually burst. Um, banks being forced to make loans to people that they knew were not going to be able to pay it back. And But it doesn't change the facts that there were people involved in that who were planning and scheming. And even Christians were involved in that. And they never said, if God wills. And James cautions us here. You know, I've talked about this before, but I'll just mention it again here. Um, wealth does not equal evil. Again, it comes down to pride and motivation. And so what are you planning to do in your life without consulting God? Have you ever even considered that tomorrow may not come for you? Uh, can you predict what will happen tomorrow? Um, with any accuracy, really and truly, you can't. You can't even predict that the sun's going to come up tomorrow, <laughs> um, because we don't know what tomorrow holds, and anything can happen. No one but God knows what tomorrow holds. So the teaching here is very simple: uh, do not take God out of your planning. Seek after Him. And here's a quote I have for you from. The great reformer John Calvin, he says, We read everywhere in the scriptures that the holy servants of God spoke unconditionally of future things when yet they had it as a fixed principle in their minds that they could do nothing without the permission 
of God. And then the very last verse, I'm just going to read the last verse here in James chapter 4. It's verse 17. He says, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. There's really only just a few words of commentary here, and that is sin is not just something that you do. It can be something left undone. If you know something is correct and you don't act upon it, it's sin. It's turning the other way. It's um, turning a blind eye or pretending that you didn't know or don't know. It's refusing to correct something. It's simply walking away. You know, sin in this way is actually inaction. It's not action, but inaction. And for evil to prevail in any situation, all the Christian has to do is very simple. Just do nothing. Just do nothing. As James says, to him who knows to do good and does not do it to him, it is sin. So we're going to close for now. As always, may God bless you with his mercy and his grace.